before I start this episode, I think it's only proper to introduce myself. My name is Peyton Ellison. I am a current freshman at Sweeney New Politics studying journalism. I've been writing professionally about baseball for about a year now for Diamond Digest. And I'm now starting my on-the-air career by starting this podcast, Inside Heat. So enjoy the debut episode. Please leave constructive feedback when applicable because... The goal of this podcast is to make it like a radio show where I take comments from you guys, I put it in the podcast, and this podcast becomes like a big thing. Debut episode of Inside Heat starts right now. What's up, baseball fans? Welcome to Inzahid, wherever, whenever, and however you may be listening. I'm your host, Peyton Nelson. If you want to see more of my content, go to diamond-digest.com. Follow at diamond underscore digest on Twitter and follow me at realpmle14 on Twitter. After a long offseason, after loads of rumors that have not fluctuate into reality. Baseball is back. Pitchers and catchers are going to report in exactly three days. Time moves fast. Spring training games start in approximately two weeks. And after all that, opening day is 46 days away. And yet, the two prime free agents in this class are still unsigned. The best reliever in the game today is still unsigned. One of baseball's best pitchers over the last few years is still unsigned. But a major move occurred due to the Philadelphia Phillies, trading for the league's premier catcher in JT Romuto. We talked about all that. Other big-time free agents are still in the market. We got a lot in store for the first episode. But we have to start with everyone's favorite commissioner, Rob Manfred. Now, on Tuesday... Jeff Passan, Joel Sherman, and Ken Rosenthal all reported that Major League Baseball and the MLBPA were advancing talks about potential rule changes to the game. Now, first things first, Rob Manfred does have the power if Major League Baseball and the MLBPA cannot come to an agreement. He has the power to put in the universal DH. He has the power to put in the pitch clock. And I believe he has the power to start extra innings with runners on base. I believe the rest of them have to be approved by both Major League Baseball and and the LBPA. So let's talk about these potential rule changes for a second. Um, and I think we're going to start with something that's universally liked. And that is the potential of uni- universal DH. DH in the National League has been requested by players for about 30 years now. So this is nothing new. And there is really no reason why the DH isn't universal in baseball yet. I mean, you've seen the injuries that have happened over the years because pitchers are hitting when they're not supposed to. Masiru Tanaka last year hurt both of his hamstrings jogging to home plate. Uh, Pedro Strope, I believe, his... Season derailed because of um, 
because of an injury while batting. Adam Wainwright, a few years back, he tore his Achilles tendon. And while Adam Wainwright came back at the end of the year to pitch like four games, he has not been the same pitcher since the injury. Um, 11 years ago, Chang Ming Wan, um, he tore two parts of his foot hitting, and that basically derailed his whole career. He was never the same pitcher after that. Really never a major league caliber player, pitcher. So, Universal DH is long overdue. It's not. There's no sort of con I can think of that makes not having a DH necessary. We, we can think of a whole lot of pros, though. Um, of course, preventing pitcher injuries from batting. Extending the careers of players that simply cannot play the field, that get injured a lot, like Kyle Swarber, um, Barsaposi eventually, those guys. And the DH has extended careers before. Uh, David Ortiz doesn't play until 2016 without the DH. Edgar Martinez doesn't play as long as he did without the DH. Nelson Cruz is retired right now without the DH. So the DH extends the careers of guys that that get older, that can't play the field, but boy, can they match ball. And really, what fun is it to see a pitcher flail at three straight pitches. And the number of pitchers that can actually hit, like Madison Bumgarner and Michael Lorenzen, and the random legendary moments like Bartolo Colon getting popular all of a sudden because, hey, look at that overweight guy at the plate. But boy, is he fun to watch. Those moments... The number of guys that can hit in those weird, wacky, but fun moments, those are completely outweighed by, by the people, by the pitchers that flail at the plate, that can't put a bunt down, that have no business being at the plate. The traditionalists will also argue that it takes away from real baseball. This is not the 1970s anymore. Just before the DH came about. High schoolers are not being taught to hit anymore. Andrew Suarez, the San Francisco Giants starting pitcher. After 8th grade, they stopped teaching him how to hit. If you were a pitcher, they didn't let you hit. And that's most high schools nowadays. They're not teaching pitchers how to hit anymore. They're not teaching them how to run the bases because their job is to pitch. They are trying to get into the major leagues to pitch, not to hit, not to run, to pitch. And even in the major leagues, you can say, well, if the pitcher's not hitting, they're not a real baseball player. Every single pitcher in the major leagues, aside from Shohei Otani, is strictly getting paid to pitch. Show you times getting paid for both. Sending them to the plate increases the injury risk. And is essentially a free out in the lineup. So, what is the point? Besides strategy, 
besides Madison Bumgarner, besides Michael Lorenzen, besides the freak moments like Bartolo Colon, what is the point of not having a DH anymore? No pitcher is being taught how to hit anymore. From high school up, no pitcher is getting taught how to hit. You're you're only increasing the likelihood of getting hurt if you if you keep on sending them up to the plate in the major leagues. It's that simple. So that's a DH. Um, eventually, the universal DH is going to come to baseball. They can't do it this year because um, because national teams are ill prepared for. Um, like they're preparing their team as if they need more bench players because there is no DH, except for the Mets because the Mets the Mets were well prepared for this. They already knew Robinson Cano was heading towards um, likely either having to move to first or if he was traded to an American League team, he would have to move to DH. So the Mets are prepared for this no matter. Oh, and also. If Robson Cano can still play the field, they have Peter Alonzo, who is either a first baseman or DH. So the Mets are prepared for this. The other 14 teams, probably not. So um, DH cannot be enforced this year. 2020 has to be. So that's the DH. I'm pretty sure most, most younger baseball fans are in favor of of the DH in both leagues. I mean, unless you're talking to traditional baseball fans, that's not much of a debate. The other rule changes, those lead to more of a debate. Which brings me to the next one. A three-batter minimum. So, basically what Major League Baseball wants to do, they want to limit the amount of pitching changes in the game. So, what they're trying to do is... When any pitcher comes into the game, the starter, the reliever, they have to face a minimum of three batters before they can be taken out. And this is purely a pace of play rule because, because you saw what happened in the NLCS last year. Um, Wayne Miley pitched to one batter before um, Craig Council took him out for Brandon Woodruff. The left-hand reliever that would come in to face one batter... Um, those pitching changes take up a lot of time. So I can see why Major League Baseball wants, wants to make this rule. Or make some rule to limit the amount of pitching changes. The problem with that is, first of all, you're taking jobs away from pitchers. If this rule comes into place, Jerry Bluffett doesn't have a job. If this rule comes into place, Randy Choate is not a major league pitcher. Clay Rapata does not pitch a whole year for the Yankees in 2012. Those guys become obsolete because they have to face three hitters, and unless there's three straight lefties coming up, they're not going to get any pitching time. So those guys are going to be obsolete. Moreover, this rule and a lot of the rules that Major League Baseball is proposing they're basically trying to eliminate being smart. Like, banning the ship. They're eliminating 
the managers and analytical people in baseball trying to be smart in playing defense. This rule pre prevent things like the opener that the Rays made popular last year. Like, we talked about the DH medicine with the fundamentals of baseball. This rule is going to mess up pitching fundamentals in the game. So, I can see why Major League Baseball wants this to happen. But, a 3 band minimum is not the best way to do it. And also, another thing that you have to consider. You pitch one batter, a pitcher gets injured. There will likely be, be an exception, right? What is stopping a manager from saying, okay, pitches one batter, and then pretend your back is hurt? What is stopping a manager from doing that? And then if that happens, then, you know, the pitcher who comes in gets as many warm pitches as they want. That prolongs the game. So how do you... How do you enforce that rule without having these fake injuries? Do you say, okay, if they really are injured, put them on the 10-day DL? What if it's a minor injury where it's just back inflammation? He'll be back in five days. Are you going to put him on the 10-day DL then? This rule just has so much to work on before it can be put in place. But something does have to be done about the number of pitching changes, uh, the number of pitching changes in a baseball game. Because the number of pitching changes in a game that does slow down baseball, and there does need to be a change there. So that's three bad minimum. Now we talk about another pitching legislation change. And this has been in talk since Rob Manfred came into office. That is the 20-second pitch clock. Now, like I said before, this is one of those rules that Rob Manfred can put in right now if he wanted to. And this has been the minor leagues for a few years. So pitchers are already getting used to um, pitching at a higher pace. Um, I used to be against pitch clock, but then I had to watch Ryan Yarbrough of the Tampa Bay Rays take 40 seconds between pitches, and I was like, this has to change. There are a number of pitches out there that take at least 30 seconds, 30 seconds between pitches. Sonny Gray is a big-time offender. David Price used to be one of those guys. There's just pitches that take too long. Those are the pros. The cons. Same thing with the three-batter minimum. Who is stopping a pitcher from taking advantage of this rule? They could let the clock wind down to 19 seconds and step off. And also, how do you enforce this rule when there's runners on base? Because if you think about it, if there's a run at first and the clock is winding down, if the pitch clock is down to three, there is no way a pitcher is going to throw over the first. No way. So if a pitcher takes long enough, that's a free base every single time. Another thing, if you're going to legislate the pitchers throwing out the 20 seconds, you have to legislate something against the hitters. Because as much as the pitchers might take a long time, um, there are hitters out there that step out of the box, fiddle with their gloves, tap the bat two times, 
they do a whole bunch of things, and that takes 20 seconds. So if you can legislate um, a timer for pitchers, you have to legislate a timer for hitters as well. And the other thing you have to consider is, does this faster pace increase injuries? Because there are two possible ways injuries can increase. Let's say the clock is down to three, and the pitcher's not even close to being set. And it's a 3 2 count, so you don't want to walk in her. Does that pitcher just quicken up his motion and risk and risk tearing his UCL? Because that does happen. Like one major fine, next minute your UCL is gone. Or does a pitcher who's not used to a pitch clock at all probably will not adapt to a pitch clock because he's so used to pitching at a slower pace? Does he tear his UCL just because the pace of play is is faster because of the pitch clock? Those those are all the things you have to consider with the pitch clock. It's a great concept in theory, but but there's a lot of things that need to be thought about before the pitch clock can be put in place. So we're talking a lot about pitchers. We're talking about three bad minimums. We're talking about pitch clocks. We're talking about universal DH. Another thing that MLB wants is the expansion of rosters to 26. And and then in September, where usually you would have 40 players, players up, they want that to be 28 players. And you know what? I'll take that. First of all, the 40 players in September, it's fun to see it's fun to see a top prospect come up just to see what they got. Um, Miguel and Duhar last year, um, Shane Spencer, those guys, those are fun, right? What is the need? I mean, you play an entire season, you have 25 players, and then it's crunch time. Uh, playoff pushes are being made. And you're playing those the most important games of the regular season with 15 extra players. Which, by the way, only increases the amount of pitchers that a team can have. So suddenly, a team that usually employs 13 pitchers now has 20. So let's take a Yankee-Red Sox game, for example. It is a close game. Um, Aaron Boone wants to put a matchup. He can run in reliever after reliever after reliever after reliever out there. And nothing is stopping him. And the game becomes four hours. Four, four and a half hours. So that roster increase never made much sense. It's fun, but it just doesn't make sense. As for the rest of the regular season, they wanted to increase by one roster spot. And and you think, oh great, another uh, bullpen arm. That would make it 14 for most teams nowadays. But what Major League Baseball wants to do is they want to limit the the bullpens, uh, the pitching staff, to 12. I have no problem with that. None at all. Because 
you if you can't have the three batting minimum and you can't have the twenty second pitch clock, at the very least, you have a twelve pitcher maximum. The only thing this would hurt is the strategy of the opener. Because let's say the maximum is 12 pitchers. Let's just take the Tampa Bay Rays, for example. They would have Blake Snell and then about, what, 11 relievers. And you can't pitch all those relievers. I just don't think the opener would exactly work with that one less pitcher spot. But other than that, I have zero problem with the expansion of rosters. I have zero problem with the 12-pitcher maximum. Not at all. Simply because it allows for a quick game, which is exactly what baseball wants, which is pretty much exactly what all these rule changes are for. The last thing I want to talk about is the draft advantages for winning teams that was proposed. What Major League Baseball also proposed was disadvantages for losing teams. And I want to start with that real quick because that's a ploy to stop tanking. You know, what the Astros did um, before they won a World Series, what the Cubs did before they won a World Series. They want to stop that. And that's fine. But what they want to do is give penalties for losing teams. So, the depth of the penalties weren't exactly clear, um, according to Jeff Passan. But, what the union suggested, the players' union, by the way, was that teams that lose 90-plus games in consecutive years could be affected neg- negatively in the draft. This is a quote from Passan's article. And, and I believe there was a number of reports somewhere that it could drop as much as 15. Just think about that for a second. So, forget the Astros, forget the Cubs. Let's say the Orioles lose 100 games over the next five years. You're telling the Orioles, who are terrible... That if they lose 100 games again, their draft pick drops by 100 spots. So instead of getting the first overall pick, they get the 15th overall pick. The problem is the Orioles are not taking. They are legitimately bad. They're not the Cubs holding top prospects that can help them now until they feel that they're ready to compete. This is the Orioles. They have nothing. Manny Machado is going to sign literally elsewhere. Jonathan Scope is gone. Chris Davis can't hit one if he fell out of the boat. Trey Mantini might be their best offensive player, and that's not good. That's not good. And the pitching staff is always terrible. And combined with all that, their farm system is not the greatest. And you're going to tell the Orioles... Hey, uh, if you lose 100 games again, um, your draft spot is going to drop by 15 games. They're legitimately bad. How do you enforce that rule for the tanking teams and not mess up the legitimately legitimately bad teams like the Orioles? But on the flip side of that, the, the compensation to 
winning teams that just make the playoffs, I'm all for that. <clears throat> like the Mariners, they they won 89 games, they missed the playoffs. Okay. The Mariners felt that they had to blow up the entire roster because they have no means of acquiring any other talent. Think about that. A team that won 89 games felt that they couldn't compete. And to be fair, they probably couldn't because um, the Astros are still a very good team. The Yankees slash Red Sox and the Rays are probably better than the Mariners. So could they compete? Probably not. But if you give them greater draft positions or bonus pools for international free agents, then they say, you know what? If we get young guys, we might be able to, first of all, compete, and second of all, stay competitive. Now, Jeff Pazin's article also says this is more specific to low-revenue teams like the Rays, like the Mariners, like the Athletics, like the Brewers if they miss the playoffs this year uh, for whatever reason. Those teams will be able to succeed. So those are the rule changes that Major League Baseball and the Union have proposed. Now, uh, John Heyman says that it's likely that none of these rule changes get put into place. But of course, Rob Manfred still has that power to put into the 22nd pitch clock, uh, put in the extra innings for runners on base rule. So, right now, the best thing we can do is wait to see what happens with that. So, transitioning back into free agency and stuff like that. Uh, the Phillies made a big move. And the Phillies acquired JT Romuto from the Marlins uh, for Jorge Alfaro, who would have been their starting catcher this year. Um, Sixo Sanchez, their top prospect. Will Schmidt and international bonus pool money. The Phillies look like they're about to win the NLEs. Because we talk about um, the fact that there might have been a four-team race in the NL East. The Braves, of course, they're only going to get better from here. The Mets, the, with the moves they made. The Nationals reassuring their their um, rotation. Now, of course, the Nationals are losing Harper, but that team could still potentially bounce back, be a postseason team again, and maybe... Compete for the uh, for the NL East. The Phillies they made a lot of moves this offseason. They didn't spend the stupid money that their GM was talking about the, that they promised to spend, but they made a lot of good moves. First of all, they acquired Gene Segura, and I'm not going to be the one that says Gene Segura is a top five shortstop in the game, but he can play. Good good defense. Um, can make contact, doesn't really get on base a lot, but I mean, if you don't get, my personal belief is, if you don't get on base a lot, at least make contact to surface for it. If he hit three, if he hit 297, but your on base percentage is 330, how can you hold that against someone? I mean, the point of the game is to hit the ball. But anyway. They acquired Gene Segura in that 
um, Mariners trade. They signed Dave Robson to show up their bullpen. They signed Andrew McCutcheon to, to first of all, play left field and move Reese Hoskins, who, by the way, was probably the worst defensive player in baseball last year, to first base. The Phillies are going to win some games. They're going to win a lot of games. But do I believe they're going to win the division? Yes, I do. Do I believe that they're going to make the World Series? It's a possibility. The Phillies did a lot this offseason. In this JT Romito trade, their catching situation went from maybe uh, top 20-ish to the best in baseball. I mean, there is no question that JT Romito is the best catcher in baseball. Gary Sanchez was up there for like a year, and they had the season they had. So JT Romito is the best catcher in baseball. There's no debating that right now. Now, while the Phillies may have had a great offseason, did they give up too much for JT Romito? Now, uh, Joel Sherman states that when uh, the Marlins, Mets, and Yankees were discussing that three-team trade, that... Um, the Marlins, that the Marlins were asking for both Miguel Andujar and Gary Sanchez. Granted, the Yankees were going to, to get Noah Syndergaard in the trade, but that still would have been a lot. But back to the Phillies. Did they give up too much? And everyone's saying that they might have. I'm going to give you the honest answer. They didn't. I mean, Sixer Sanchez, yes. He was Philly's best prospect. But, Sixo Sanchez has had arm issues. So, if he rebounds from that, Marlins got a great pitcher in return from JT Lomito. Um, I don't know that much about Will Smith to give you, to give you a good opinion on him. Um, in international bonus money, I, I believe Derek Jesus is going to be making big splashes in the international market. So those are those three. Um, the only one that has played in the major league game that was in this trade is Jorge Alfaro. And like I said, he was going to be the Phillies starting catcher had he not acquired JT Romito. Jorge Alfaro's last season was his first like full season. And he and he still only had about 344 at bats. Afaro is a former top prospect. I get it, and he has done decently in the major leagues. But whether he was actually going to be a major league caliber catcher still remains to be seen. JC Romuto is already um, a great catcher, so that's an upgrade no matter what. The other thing about Jorge Alfaro is that when it comes to pass balls and wild pitches, he is not far from Christian Vasquez and Gary Sanchez. In 2018, he threw out less than the league average in caught ceiling with 26. The league caught ceiling percentage was 28. He had 10 pass balls in 869 innings. And he allowed 
49, 49 wall pitches to go by. Now, if you want to play the compare game, Gary Sanchez had 653 innings, allowed 18 pass balls, 45 wall pitches to go by. But, Gary Sanchez is a good framer, and he has a can for an arm. Jorge Far has a can for an arm, but other than that, he is not that good of a um, defensive catcher. Jorge Far. J.T. Romuso, for the most part, uh, plays at, at the most average at the position, but it's better than Jorge Far. So, did the Phillies give up too much in this trade? Um, that solely depends on how the development of Sixo Sanchez goes. If Sixo Sanchez becomes a even a number two starter, if Jorge Faro improves offensively, if Will Schmidt becomes a legitimate piece in the Marlins' plans, the Phillies might give up too much. Especially if this move blows up in the face. If the Phillies don't make the postseason in the next few years, the Phillies gave up too much. The Phillies lost the trade. But as of now, um, the Phillies won the trade, and they did not give up too much. Speaking of the Phillies and possible competitiveness, now we talk about the JT Ramuto trade, um, the Phillies winning the division. That stuff. Does this trade influence Bryce Harper? And I'm going to say that the answer is no. I mean, it becomes a attractive landing spot because the Phillies are now maybe the best team in the in the National League East, but. At the end of the day, Harper's going to sign for whoever gives him the most money. Whether that's the Phillies, whether that's the Padres, whether that's the White Sox, whether the Yankees come out of nowhere. It's going to be whoever gives him the most money. And if Harper does end up signing with the Phillies, it's definitely not going to be because um, the Phillies traded for J.C. Romito. So I mentioned Harper, so that means uh, we got to talk about free agency. So like I said at the beginning of the podcast, we are three days away from pitchers and catchers reporting. And of course, Manny Pichado and Bryce Harper are not a pitcher or a catcher. But that's concerning because both of them are still on the market. And both of them apparently are not even close to signing. And what we know about Manny Pichado, he has an offer from, from, from the White Sox. Well, that's the seven years, $175 million that Buster only was, was reporting, or the eight years, $250 million that Hector Gomez was reporting. He has an offer on the table from the White Sox. The Phillies, if they miss out on Harper, they could potentially go after their main child. The Padres, they met with main child. The Yankees met with main child, and while it looks like they might be out, never forget, the Yankees were out Mark Shera. Last minute, they swooped in and signed to share. Bubba Crosby was supposed to be the Yankees starting center fielder. Giant David ends up getting signed. So, never count the Yankees for either player. 
But anyway, but let's talk about Manny Machado's potential destinies for a second. First of all, the Padres jumping in on both Manny Machado and Bryce Harper. I believe that they're trying to do what they did in 2015. When they traded for Matt Kemp, when they traded for Justin Upton, when they traded for Will Myers, when they traded for Craig Kimball, when they did all those moves, and that team looked really good on paper. And then they fell off the face of the map. The Padres were also linked to JT Romuto before he was traded to the Phillies. So I believe the Padres were trying to do what they did in 2015. Now, does losing out on JT Romuto change those plans? Who knows? Now, like I said, Manny Machado has, has an offer from the White Sox. Why hasn't Manny Machado signed? Ken Rosenthal earlier today said that both Machado and Harper were still looking at $300 million. And first of all, that is ridiculous. It is, Fe- it is February 8th. Teams' rosters are pretty much set by now. Or almost set. If they haven't offered you a $300 million contract by now, they're not giving it to you. And I'm pretty sure we've already established that they're not going to give out a 10-year contract. They may not even get out, give out an 8-year contract. So let's say we're talking about 7 years, $300 million. You are asking a team to give you $43 million a year. What team is taking $43 million out of their payroll for Mayhem Sean and Bryce Harper? They're not willing to take out $30 million for the next 10 years. What makes you think they're going to do 7 years, $300 million? If I was Manny Machado, I would have taken that eight-year, $250 million offer a long time ago. The fact that Machado and Harper are still waiting for $300 million, that's ridiculous. Take the money and sign already. So that's what they're setting the market at for themselves. It is February 8th. Nobody's going to $300 million. Nobody. But in the case of Machado, and I've been saying this for the past month, we heard the rumors that he, if the offers were close, he was going to sign with the Yankees. We we saw the rumors in the in July when the Yankees were trying to acquire him that he really wanted to be a Yankee. We saw him liking pictures of him in the Yankee uniform. We saw him follow DS Network. We saw him follow other Yankees, including CeCe's Matthews' personal page. We saw all of that. My initial thought was he was just waiting, waiting for the Yankees to give him an offer. Just waiting. Just give me anything. Um, eight years to ten. Seven years two hundred. Anything he was winning for. And he would have jumped on that offer. 
But then Ken Rosenthal reported that they were both still looking for 300 million. So there's two things that come to mind. Either this is Dan Lozano telling Manny, we're signing for whoever offers the most money. We're waiting until we get 300 million. Or Manny Machado's initial purpose for signing with the Yankees was for the money. And that's pretty much been the Yankees over the last 15 years. Agents have used the Yankees to set the market. And then players get big-time deals. The Yankees aren't doing that anymore. So maybe May Machado's holding up is holding hope that the Yankees offer a big-time deal and either he signs it or the White Sox feel pressured to go up $300 million. Maybe that's what Machado and Lozano are doing. Or he really wants to be a Yankee, and he's just waiting, waiting for the Yankees to send out some offer. Bryce Harper, why hasn't he signed? It's probably the same reason. He's probably waiting for the Yankees to make an offer so that so that the market could go up. In reality, I have no idea why Bryce Harper hasn't signed yet. I mean, the Phillies, they made a big pitch to him. The Padres, they're making a big run for him. The White Sox were making a big run for him at some point. So I, I don't know why Bryce Harper has, hasn't signed yet. At least May Machado, you have the potential, I don't know, maybe he's waiting for the Yankees. I don't know why Bryce Harper hasn't signed, besides what Ken Rosendahl reported about the $300 million stuff. But no matter what, this free agent thing has to change for next year. It has to. Because it cannot be February 8th next year, and Nolan Arenado still has not signed with the team. That cannot happen again next year. We cannot have in two years Mike Trout and Mookie Betts still in the free agent. Especially Mike Trout. We cannot have Mike Trout on the free agent market on February 8th. So now I'm going to transition into some random thoughts. These, these are something that aren't necessarily scripted. But they come off the top of my head as I'm planning to do the podcast. And I think we should talk about them. And there are two things on my mind right now. First things first. The Red Sox have to resign Craig Kimbrell. Now I get it. The Red Sox are a great team. They won 100 games last year. They haven't lost much besides Kimbrell. Um, the Red Sox are either going to win the division or, or do what the Yankees did this year. And 100 games playing the Walker game. One of the two is going to happen. Either way, this team is not missing the postseason by any means. But the one thing that will stop them from winning the division in the lower World Series title is their lack of bullpen. Last year, at the very least, you had Craig Kimbrough, who gave you a hard attack five games in the postseason. 
But at the end of the day, he still got the save. If the price drops enough, the Red Sox have to resign Craig Kimball. And I know the Red Sox are currently in the luxury tax situation. They're trying to cut payroll. Um, basically, if they were to sign him for $16 million a year, they'd be pay- paying $24 million a year. I get it. But almost all the other low-priced, probable closer options that you could have had, Sean Kelly, those guys, they're gone. So it's either sign Craig Kimbrell or pray to God. Because that's basically the Red Sox bullpen right now. There's a bunch of quadruple A guys. And then there's a the hope that Matt Barnes becomes a good closer. And there's a, there's a hope that Brian Brazier repeats last season. And Brian Brazier did not pitch a great amount of innings last year. So I don't know if he's going to repeat that. I don't know if Matt Barnes is going to be a closer. I don't know if any of those other guys in their bullpen are going to step up. So if the Red Sox want to win this division again, maybe compete for another World Series title, they have. They have to sign Craig Kimball. One-year deal, five-year deal, whatever. Craig Kimbrell, or some sort of reliever that can compensate. The other thing that I was thinking about. Now, according to Aaron Boone, the Yankees roster is complete. According to Hal Steinbrenner, um, the Yankees could still make one big splash. Whether that means a potential run at Bryce Harper, or Manny Machado, or if he needs a six-pitcher option, who knows? I mean, I, I, I've grown to just not to just not trust the words that come out of Hal Steinbrenner and broadcasters now because they're just they're politicians um, running a baseball club. But I was thinking about this, and if the price drops just enough. The Yankees are signed Dallas Keuchel. Now, I was completely against the Yankees signing Dallas Keuchel. I thought he was going to be an angel. But once again, it's February 8th. And of course, Dallas Keuchel is not signed because whatever reason. So, once again, the price dropped low enough. I sincerely believe the Yankees should sign Dallas Keuchel. To a short-term deal, not a five-year deal. Maybe two, three years or so. Here's why. Dallas Keuchel is a ground ball pitcher. That's perfect for Yankee Stadium. Dallas Keuchel has pitched well against the Yankees. You eliminate that happening too again. If the price drops enough, I think the Yankees should get him. Uh, if it drops to three years, $68 million, I would say, that's when I would pull the trigger. 
Because the Yankees are talking about looking for a potential six starter in case CC gets hurt. Dallas Keuchel is a perfect number four starter in the Yankee rotation. And I know that sounds weird to say because Dallas Keuchel was the ace of the Astros and eventually became the number two pitcher. Luis Severino is better than Dallas Keuchel. Uh, James Paxson is better than Dallas Keuchel. Masahiro Tanaka is arguably better than Dallas Keuchel. So, if you can sign Dallas Keuchel, that rotation is ridiculous. Luis Severino, Masahiro Tanaka, James Paxson, J-Hab, Dallas Keuchel, and then CC Zabathia as a six-starter. That rotation is dangerous. But again, only if the price drops enough. If Dallas Keuchel is doing the same thing as Craig Kimbrell and Manny Machado and um, Bryce Harper, then no. But if it drops enough, Yankees should consider it. So that concludes the debut episode for the podcast. Thank you for listening. Um, if you like the show, leave a review in the comments. If you are on iTunes or YouTube. Once again, if you want to follow more of my content, go follow me on Twitter at RealPMLE14. And go follow Diamond Digest at Diamond underscore Digest on Twitter. Or Diamond-Digest.com. Next podcast, I pray, I hope, I believe that at least one of May Machado or Bryce Harper or Craig Kimbrell have signed with the team and we'll discuss anything with those moves. We'll talk about that and any early spring training reports. You know, we will have all that and more on the next episode of Inside. Until then, I'm signing Peace.